The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Turn your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We find ourselves in the middle of a study of the Ten Words of Moses, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. This is an interesting section of Scripture for many reasons. It's Moses repeating the Ten Commandments as he's standing on the plains of Moab as he's about to lead the new generation to the promised land, to the precipice, to the Jordan River, but he himself will not be able to go across. Instead, he's handed the the reins of leadership over to Joshua, who will take uh, this new generation into the promised land. The old generation had to die out. Why? Because they doubted God. As Moses could not cross the Jordan because he doubted God as well. You'll remember he struck the rock instead of speaking to it, as the Lord said, and And God said, you cannot go. In fact, there's a very sad pleading that Moses gives back in Deuteronomy 4 and basically says, Lord, please, can can I please go to the promised land? He says, no, you can't go, but I'm going to take you up on a mountain and let you look across and see what a great land it is, and then you can come to heaven. And I can assure you, Moses was not disappointed that day. We live in a society utterly confused about its values, and utterly confused about its moral system. To say the least, it is duplicitous at best. This last week, I had a very interesting conversation with my son, John. I've asked John if I could share this with you, and he has given me permission. John and I were talking about the headlines. And if you follow along the headlines, you know that there has been some troubling news that's come out of, of uh, Ohio where... Um, Uh, Three women were held captive, and uh, rape ensued, and um, at least one baby was born. And there's an outrage because of the possibility that this man inflicted miscarriages on uh, at least one of these young women, and now the, the prosecutor is considering the death penalty for such acts. Sounds reasonable enough to me. Except for the fact that my son asked a great question. Dad, why is abortion legal and this is murder? It's a good question. It's an excellent question. And it raises the question that's answered in our text before us. It's a very simple command in Deuteronomy 5.17. It's four words in the English. You shall not... Murder. The Bible is very clear on the issue of morality, very clear on the issues of sin, and the most famous section of the Bible that outlines the right and wrongness of sin and righteousness is in the Ten Commandments, first articulated in Exodus 20, now repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In short, these are ten imperatives, ten commands, and God makes morality a very Simple task to understand. None of these Ten Commandments are very difficult to understand. A child can memorize them. A child can understand them. God makes morality very simple to understand. But remember, it's only simple for those who are in the covenant community. That would have been Israel during the origination of the Ten Commandments. And that's those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ now. Now let me qualify our study of the Sixth Commandment tonight by saying that we're going to take... 
a bit of a snorkel approach and not a scuba tank. And the reason I say that is this simple command opens up enormous ethical dominoes that can go in multiple directions. What does it mean? What does it not mean? What are the implications? I want to encourage you to take that scuba tank and go exploring all the implications and applications that flow out of this sixth commandment. And I want to encourage you to talk about this in the car tonight. Talk about this at dinner. Talk about this in the coming week. What does this mean? What are the, uh, the extents of the application of the command, do not kill, do not murder? Now, as we come to the sixth commandment, we hit a series of three commandments that are short, they're terse, they're to the point. I mean, look at these next three. You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Very simple. And you might find it interesting that uh, in these three commandments, they have only six consonants in Hebrew and the negative particle lo, along with four consonant verb forms. In other words, it's just four simple syllables, staccato, right in a row in these three verses. The fact that the Sixth Commandment is worded so sparingly has led to a wide variety of understanding and application of this commandment. The words, you shall not kill, you shall not commit murder, have been used to argue for pacifism, for example. In other words, you should never uh, punch back, you should never self-defend, you should never be involved in war, you should never be involved in the killing. Some have used this to argue for the banning of the death penalty. Some have used it for the prohibition of, prohibition of animal research. You should not kill animals. Some even use this as the argument for vegetarianism. Some go as far as to say, and I'm not making this up, that the prohibitions, from eating, uh, the prohibitions of not killing in the Sixth Commandment forbid us from eating things like carrots and green beans because a plant must die in order for it to be harvested. My question is, what are you going to eat? Still others go so far as to say that the taking and the production of penicillin or the washing of one's hands can possibly violate the sixth commandment. That's just stupid. I mean, I wish I could have better words for that. It's just stupid. You will die if you don't kill something to live. Carrots, really? Now, I understand if you're not going to kill a mushroom because it's already death in and of itself. It is a fungus. It was never intended to be consumed by humans. It's a part of the curse. It will not be in the new heavens and the new earth. Please stay away from mushrooms. If you're visiting with us tonight, I've got a thing about mushrooms. It's a biblical thing. Somewhere a Maccabees or something. No, it's not. So what is the sixth commandment really about? What is this commandment about? You shall not kill, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder. Simply put, the sixth commandment prescri pro, uh, prescribes the prohibition against, now this is important, unlawful killing. That's why the NAS, the ESV say, do not murder. The old King James says, thou shalt not kill What's going on here? Well, the Hebrew language possesses seven words that all can be translated kill. And the word used here is ratzah, very important. We'll refer to it on and on tonight. Ratzah, it appears 47 times in the Old Testament. Ratzah is, the most, is almost always used of killing a personal enemy, but its language and usage is not confined to, to just intentional and premeditated murder. 
However, in the later periods of the Old Testament, uh, the word was used exclusively for the act of intentional, violent, first-degree murder. Now, what connects murder and manslaughter, unintentional or unplanned killing of a person, is that a human is killed. The prohibition here is do not kill a human unlawfully. Ratzah refers to killing for personal revenge in Numbers 35.27 and Numbers 35.30. It refers to assassination in 2 Kings 6.32. And even once in Proverbs, it refers to a lion killing a man in Proverbs 23.13. At stake in this idea of you shall not kill, at stake in the idea of killing is that a person is killed. Interestingly, the, the word Ratzah never one time in the Bible references the killing of an animal for food. It never references the defending of one's home against the invasion of intruders or burglars. It never references the killing of a person accidentally. It's never used in the execution of murderers by the state. And it's never used of the killing of enemies in wars. There are other Hebrew words applied to that. This Hebrew word is very specific. Now, to sum it up, the word used here, you shall not kill, you shall not murder, is best understood as you shall not kill unlawfully outside the the parameters of the law. In other words, it's the taking of a human life that is not ordained in God's law. Now, that raises a question. Is there the taking of a human life that is ordained in God's law? And the answer is yes, there is. And yes, there are. No unlawful killing, all because of the value of a human life. Now, let's think about this a little more intensely if we can. What what does this prohibit? What does this allow? Well, first of all, let's let's answer the question before we get into the specific application of this that that everyone asks um, tangentially about this. Does this prevent someone from killing someone, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the loss of life in self-defense? It's a good question. Well, actually, Exodus 22, 30, uh, 22 verse 3 talks about this. Uh, the culpability is involved when such an intruder is killed in broad daylight, yet in 22, 3, it's not involved when you're killing someone at night. What does that mean? It means if you have a decision to make and can make another decision besides taking that life in broad daylight, you may be able to escape. You may be able to know if the person's armed. You may know if it's a threat of your life. You may know if you can take this guy or not. That's a different situation than if a person breaks in at night and attacks you. According to Exodus chapter 22, verse 2, if you kill a person who's coming in and poses that threat, you are not held liable for the sixth commandment. I take that very clearly to instruct all of us that the the taking of a life in self-defense, when it's really self-defense and a life is taken without malice, the Bible doesn't tell us that that's wrong. Capital punishment. People will say about, I wonder about, what about the the state executing uh, uh, prisoners under capital crimes? And there's a whole list of capital crimes that we could talk about. Well, very simply, the uh, Genesis 6 and Genesis, Genesis 6 through 9 outlines the fact that if a person's life is taken willfully and uh, cruelly and in first-degree murder, that their life should be taken as well. 
So that's outside. If God can't say don't kill and yet order people to execute. You might find it interesting to note also in Romans chapter 12, excuse me, Romans chapter 13, Paul says the state doesn't wield the sword for no good reason. And now the sword was not used to prod people along to obedience. The sword was used to kill. And he's saying they don't wield that for no unjust purpose. Paul affirmed that there was a place for the execution of capital criminals for capital crimes. So what are we talking about here? Well, uh, the bigger question comes up about manslaughter. What if you... What if you kill someone accidentally? What if someone's life is lost in a way that, um, that our state would call manslaughter? Well, if you sum it up, we would have to say that that falls under the category of the Sixth Commandment, but the scriptures, at least Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, don't prescribe that every case of manslaughter is a capital crime, demands life for life. Manslaughter occurs when death results from carelessness. In our situation, a nurse, uh, perhaps very understandably, uh, would, would misread the label of a, uh, a medicine and accidentally give that, and it would be an overdose. Well, the Bible allows for such a, a, a situation without demanding life for life. And Exodus 22 talks about that. Or someone could kill another person by being reckless. And the Bible says there are times for an in-between. Exodus also says that if you kill a person because you are willfully reckless, then you need to be not killed by capital crime, but killed, excuse me, but by excluded from the, the city and put in a, in, a, in a different city, basically a prison, like we would say. You're put in a city of, of refuge and exile. And we could talk about that. As I said, we could, we could use, talk about every instance of the application or prohibition of the Sixth Commandment probably for the next six weeks and not exhaust everything. The bigger question, though, is what does this really mean? Well, let's, let's be theological. Let's go to 30,000 feet for a moment. We need to dig a little deeper to see the reasoning behind the prohibition against unlawful killing, killing this outside of God's permissive law. By the way, we're never uh, told anywhere in Scripture that killing in a war that's just, a war that's justified, is tantamount to breaking the Sixth Commandment. We're in Deuteronomy now. You get into Joshua, and God instructs Israel to go and kill every inhabitant of the Canaanite cities that they were to conquer. God would not instruct the Israelites to do something that violated instruction he gave here in the Sixth Commandment. What's at stake here? Well, at stake here is the image of God, the imago Dei, as theologians call it from the Latin. The reason unlawful killing, murder, is wrong has nothing to do with preserving social order or keeping the peace. God's rationale is much more foundational and fundamental than that. His reasoning is rooted in the creative act of the first people, Adam and Eve. God, as the sovereign creator and giver of life, placed the highest value on human life by creating us in his image. If you went back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, you find that God's original blueprint in his design for mankind was this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, an obviously reflection of Trinitarian communication. 
according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. Then he repeats it. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And the point is, God created all the animals. An amazing array of creative um, uh, distribution of God's infinite imagination. But under no circumstance and in no instance did he convey the image of God to these animals. Only after he created man and woman did he do that. Turn back to Genesis chapter 9 for a moment. Genesis 9. This is really important. It will actually um, correct several misconceptions that people have about the Sixth Commandment. You know what Genesis 9 is. It's the end of the flood narrative. And follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They've just come off the ark. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. That's new. Before the fall, excuse me, before the flood rather, the animals didn't have this, this uh, fear that was granted them. And, and frankly, um, I understand this. I like to hunt and fish. Uh, animals and fish don't come up and say, hey, would you like to eat us today? It takes effort. With everything that creeps on the ground, with all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be for food for you. The biblical case, and I mean this, the biblical case against vegetarianism. God gave us animals to eat. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, I don't want to go into this deeply, but there was ancient Assyrian, ancient Babylonian practices where they would actually uh, be hungry. They would be going across uh, on, a, on a trip, and they would be hungry, so they'd carve out part of the muscle structure of an animal, grill it up, and eat it. God's saying, that's cruel. Kill it and eat it, but don't eat it while it's alive. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. What is he talking about? Verse 6 tells us, Whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. By man, his blood shall be shed. Why? Why is this possible? Why is the sixth commandment going to be reiterating this principle? It says so right here. For in the image of God, he made them. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiplying in it. Verse 6 is critical. The reason that life is required for life is that the image of God has been taken. The image of God said the other way has not been taken seriously. So what do we take away from this sixth commandment? Well, I want to be really broad if I can and talk about two categories of implications regarding the image of God in man. Two categories of implications regarding the image of God in man. 
Let's look at these just by looking back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You shall not murder. First, let's look at the external implications of the image of God in man. The external implications. What does this mean for us? Well, we understand that the prohibition against unlawful murder, the prohibition against, against killing in a murderous fashion, unlawful killing, is related to the image of God residing in a person. So we can determine from that that premeditated murder is to be fundamentally prohibited. Premeditated murder is a direct violation then of this sixth commandment. Now, in order to understand this, you need to actually go back and look at the narrative of Genesis chapter 4. We're not going to do that right now, but remember, Cain and Abel went at it. They both brought sacrifices. In the end, Cain slew Abel. We can talk about the reasons all we want, but God looked at that and said, you cannot shed another man's blood. Now, this brings up another footnote. Because someone might say, well, okay, you cannot unlawfully kill another, but... It doesn't say that you cannot take your own life. The Dr. Kevorkian defense. You can take your own life. You can commit suicide. It's legal in at least six foreign countries where you can plan the day you're going to die, go in, and they'll administer uh, drugs that will put you out. Then they'll administer drugs that will take your life. What about euthanasia? What about willfully... Mercy killing someone. Now, let me give a footnote to the footnote, and we'll come back to the footnote, okay? I've been in this situation. I was in this situation with my father. Uh, my brothers were in this situation with my mother. I have sat in a hospital with dozens of people who were asking the question about taking a loved one off of life support. Let me just say that is a whole different animal than a whole different situation than willfully taking someone's life who would, not, who would be sustained uh, by themselves without medical means. Without getting into a, a two-hour ethical decision, if a person would not live without sustained medical attention, you have a whole different list of decisions and, and, and questions to answer than if they, if they would. What does that mean? Well, it means the application of wisdom. It means a lot of prayer. It means getting pastoral and elder oversight. It's just not as clear-cut as a, as a violation of the Sixth Commandment. The reason I bring that up is I had a, a dear woman who was, who was a, with her uh, uh, um, a sister asking about uh, uh, their father who was on life support. And the doctor very clearly said, there's no brain waves, there's nothing that we can measure that indicates that life as, as we know it would be sustained if we stopped these, um, this medical external support. And her primary conviction was, I don't want to violate the sixth commandment. I don't want to be the one who faces my God and says, I killed my father. You can understand that, can't you? I can understand that. I was faced with the same decisions with my own father. The bottom line in that is, it's different sustaining a life that would not be sustained otherwise. A hundred years ago, this decision wouldn't have even been made. 
brings up a whole domino of questions that we can ask and answer together if you're put in that situation. But don't run so quickly, quickly to the fact that, that taking someone off life support is, is a, um, a definitive violation of the six commandments. My wife and I have directives for those kind of times. We, we've hopefully, have, uh, hopefully you've done this with your family as well. We've made those decisions before we get in that situation so that they're already made. And I know that uh, we have attorneys in our, in our church who can help you think through those issues should they come. The bigger question is, though, what in the world does this mean and what does it not mean? We ought to ask about the implications. Also, by the way, in our entertainment choices, can I just say that? I just get a little frustrated with my own heart and with the heart of people I know and people I love who are so easily entertained by just mass killing and killing and killing and killing. I think it ought to bother us a little bit. Let's ask a second, another question under this, this external implication. Uh, what about capital punishment? Well, the Bible is clear. Capital punishment, the killing of those who have committed unlawful murder unlawful killing, is to be consistently enforced. It might surprise you to know that capital punishment or the death sentence was called for in 16 different instances in the Old Testament. Let me list those for you. Premeditated murder in Exodus 21. Kidnapping. It's interesting, isn't it? Kidnapping was a capital offense in Exodus 21.16 and in Deuteronomy 24.7. Adultery. Adultery. Having a physical affair was a capital crime worthy of the death sentence in Leviticus 20, verses 10 to 22, and Deuteronomy 22, 22. Homosexuality was worthy of being killed for in Leviticus 20, verse 13. Incest in Leviticus 20, verse, uh, verses 11 and 12 and 14. Bestiality, Exodus 22, 19. Persistent disobedience to parents and authorities. Children were to be killed in Deuteronomy 17, 12, and 21, 18 to 21. Hitting or cursing parents. Exodus 21, 15 says that's worthy of the death sentence. Offering human sacrifice in Leviticus 20. False prophecy in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 10. If you're a false prophet, you said, God said this is going to happen, and it didn't. God said, you had one shot, and now it's the death sentence. Blasphemy. Irreverent speaking about God, Leviticus 24, verses 11 to 14. Uh, profaning the Sabbath. Do you believe that? Profaning the Sabbath in Exodus 35, 2 and Numbers 15, 32 and following was worthy of death. Sacrificing to false gods in Exodus 22, 20. Magic and divination, Exodus 22, 18. Unchastity in Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 to 21. In other words, having premarital sex was worth getting killed for, worthy of being killed for. And the rape of a betrothed virgin in Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 27. In all those instances, God says these are capital offenses. And notice this, not all of them involve the taking of another life. I bring that up to say that God says there is lawful taking of one's life. When it's the committing, uh, when it's the punishment for a crime that he has clearly laid out. What's important to note about this list 
is that a ransom, by the way, or a substitute could be paid instead of incurring the death penalty uh, for all these except premeditated murder. Numbers 35, 31 reads, Moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In all these other situations, you could pay a ransom and sometimes be put out into another camp, uh, exiled to another city. What we're talking about here in the Sixth Commandment is that word ratzah. It's the act of killing another human that cannot be pardoned by another human. Since God is the author of life and the author of the prohibition, no human authority could ever pardon a murder. Furthermore, the narrative about the first murder of Abel by Cain notes the obvious fraternal relationship between them seven times in that narrative. The fact that they were brothers is referenced. This is another way of teaching us that all murder is ultimately fratricide, killing of another human brother before God. Genesis 4.10 reads, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, when you look at the historical referencing interpretation of this, the rabbis in the Mishnah interpreted this to encompass not only the blood of the victim, but also that of all of his potential offspring, now doomed to never being born. You were guilty of not only killing this man, but every child he would have had, every child that woman would have had if you killed a a woman. They further commented, quote, why we only... Why was only one man created by God to teach that whoever takes a single life destroys thereby the whole world of human beings, end quote. In other words, when you look at someone, you're looking at the entire potential that they could have had by having children. Also, unintentional homicide is to be seriously understood. Unintentional homicide... Manslaughter is to be seriously understood. Accidental homicide, manslaughter, is distinguished in the law and the Torah uh, from being premeditated murder. Uh, However, it's still to be understood as a very serious matter. Numbers 33 tells us that either a ransom must be worked out or the perpetrator must flee and find refuge in what's called the city of refuge, cities of refuge outside of the primary city of dwelling. Even if it's unintentional, the loss of human life at the hand of another human, is serious to God. That's why we read what looks like silly commands. You're in Exodus 24 and 25, and and the text says, make sure you put a parapet up around the top of your roof. Make sure you put a guardrail up on top of your house. Why? In case your neighbor's up there, he doesn't fall off. And as we said, self-defense is to be carefully considered. Not all self-defense situations should involve the taking of a life. But Exodus 22 says, if someone invades your house at night, you don't have the privilege of making those kinds of decisions. And can I say this, especially in light of what we've been reading in the newspaper and seeing on the television in the last few weeks? Abortion is never to be justified. So much confusion exists today about the status of life in the womb. This uh, latest case uh, up in uh, New England uh, has just, with this horrific doctor, has just 
tried my sensibilities. I'm beyond my ability to even process what this doctor has done. No such confusing exists in the Bible, however. No such confusion exists about when life begins. It's a fair question to ask regarding the Bible's silence on abortion per se, though. Why doesn't the Bible address it first? There's a lot of things the Bible forbids that are not expressly prohibited word for word in its pages. For example, the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid slavery. But it does set forth principles about human relationships that guard against the abuse and ill treatment of one another. I think another reason that um, there are no explicit commands against abortion is that the thought of voluntarily terminating a pregnancy was, pardon the pun, inconceivable to an Old Testament Jew. Progeny, having children, was an immeasurable blessing. To terminate a pregnancy is beyond their, uh, their conception. Abortion abuses God's sovereignty. How? Because it does not acknowledge that every zygote is fearfully and wonderfully made, personally created by God himself, and there's no such thing, can I say this? There is no such thing as an accidental or unexpected pregnancy in heaven. No such thing. Abortion destroys the image of God stamped on every human life. I find it interesting the day in which we live in the Roe versus Wade world that most who seek abortions do so out of one underlying motive convenience. Convenience. Go back to the discussion that. My son John and I were having. So let me put it in his vernacular. Let me put it in a 15-year-old world, okay? So let me get this straight, Dad. If this guy caused this girl to have an abortion, he could be tried for first-degree murder and killed, right? Yes. But if a person goes to Planned Parenthood and gets an abortion themselves, they can't be charged for first-degree murder, murder, right? Yes. Yes. He says, how does that make sense? My answer, it doesn't. Can I just give you a couple of bullet points on God's perspective on abortion? Nine of them. Just a real, I used to keep this in the back of my Bible. Now I have it on my iPhone, so it's easy to find. Number one, God decides who will conceive God decides who will conceive. Genesis 29, 31 says that. There is no such thing as an accidental pregnancy. Number two, God gives children as gifts. Psalm 127, verse three, children are a a blessing. They're an inheritance. They're a gift from God. Number three, God is the maker of all people. Psalm 100, verse three says, all people look to God as their maker and creator. Number four, God creates the wonder of life in the womb. We all know it. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. I was fearfully and wonderfully made in my mother's womb. By who? Mom, dad, no. By God. Five, God creates people in his own image. Genesis 127. Every human ever conceived 
is an image bearer of God. Number six, God sees the unborn as people. I don't have the time to chase this all over uh, the scriptures, but God, when he looks at unborn children, sees them as people. You can look up Isaiah 49, verse 1. Jeremiah 1.5, Galatians 1.15, and Exodus 21, verses 22 to 24. I see some of you writing feverishly. We'll, we'll put this, make this available on the website, okay? Number seven, God calls the unborn a child. Genesis 16.4, Isaiah 26.17, Luke 1.41 calls an unborn person a child. Not a fetus, not a zygote, not an inconvenience. Number eight, God will judge those who shed the blood of the innocent. Genesis 6.9. God will judge those who shed the blood of the innocent. Genesis 6.9. And also, lastly, number nine, God commands that compassion be shown to unborn children. Isaiah 49, 15, show compassion to the unborn child. Now, I say all that, but I also want to say this. I preached on this many times before, and it is inevitable when you preach, probably with a group this size, that someone has had an experience, even maybe personally, with an abortion or having an abortion. It is so unbelievably fantastic for me to stand here and tell you that we have a God who forgives, who is gracious, who forgave murderous Saul, who gives grace and who gives compassion. You don't need to run to the deputies and turn yourself in, but run to the cross and thank him for forgiveness. Let me just say something else real quickly about wartime killing, because that always comes up in this. What about killing in wars? Well, most wars of the Bible are referred to as holy or just wars, but a better understanding is to call them Yahweh wars, wars of God. They were commanded by God, and that makes it really simple. If God commands you, it's a lawful killing. You say, well, what about them being image bearers of God? Here's the deal. They, they, nothing happened to those people that wasn't going to happen to them eventually anyway. They were going to die. The wages of sin is death. And God will execute that at his own pace and in his own will. I'm not going to be silly or trite about this, but some people, can I just offer this to my vegetarian friends? Genesis 9, 3 and Acts chapter 10 clearly say, eat the animals. If you don't like meat, you don't have to eat it. If you're a vegetarian because of health reasons, that's, that's not an issue. But don't say the Bible prohibits the eating of animals. It very clearly says they are here for us to eat. I don't even want to get graphic with you, but what he's designed animals is amazing. Um, once you... Uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with an animal, God has made it, it's connected at the top and the bottom. All the stuff comes out and it's a meat machine. It's actually an amazing creation of God. And he gave that and he gave the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the skin to be used. Ever wondered this? In the, ver- in the very first instance in the garden of sin, 
Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with plants. It didn't work. At least it didn't work before God. Plants were a very effective way of covering nakedness. I'm sure there were big, leafy plants that could have covered their nakedness, and they would have shielded the eyes from nakedness. But here's the deal. It didn't cover their guilt, and it didn't didn't cover their shame. So God provides other covering. What did he provide? Animal skins. Where did he get those animal skins? He sacrificed the animal. God is the first person to use animals for man's benefit by their death. And yet still... We shouldn't do that inappropriately. We shouldn't kill just for killing's sake. I'm going to, Mark, can I talk about that first deer just for a second? Okay. Something happened with Mark and me uh, several years ago that, I, that really crystallized some, some of the theology in, in Genesis uh, chapters 1 through 9. My son and I were going to, he went out with me on a hunt, and I was able to to shoot a deer. That's right. I shot a deer and it died. And we uh, uh, butchered this animal and put it in the freezer. And a few days later, we were eating some wonderful backstrap. And I asked Mark to pray. And his prayer, and I mean this, significantly clarified my theology in an incredible way. Mark said, he was there when, when he saw the, the animal die, and he said, God, thank you for this animal that gave up its life for us to enjoy this meal. That's good theology. It's really good theology. So please, if if you have a sensitive heart, that's okay. You just got to know chicken nuggets don't grow on trees, okay? (laughs) You don't have to be involved with the killing, but if you're involved with the eating, just know that that animal died. Internal implication. Let me just be very, very uh, quick about this because this is important. What about the internal application of the sixth commandment? You say, what do you mean internal? How can I kill someone internally? It's a very good question, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 21, you've heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, the sixth commandment. Jesus references the sixth commandment and said, you've heard that the angels, the old Jews, were told to not commit murder. And he goes on, whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And then Jesus goes on and says this, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Wait a minute, time out. Guilty before what court? The court that just said that murder was wrong, the same court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, means empty head, you idiot, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. So Jesus says, you know, you shall not kill, you shall not commit murder. Bad, obviously. But... That's the external manifestation. You are as culpable before God as a sinner if you've been angry or hated someone as if you had murdered them. Obviously, it's not the same. You can't say, well, if I'm angry, I might as well go kill him. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that sin is that serious to God. 
Angry emotions are as culpable as murder. 1 John 3.15 says that. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. How about this? Talking about the internal. Insulting comments are as culpable as execution. Just insulting someone. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And I learned something. One of the worst lies anyone ever told me in my whole life was this. This was a horrific lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I've broken a lot of bones. I've dislocated stuff, torn stuff. It doesn't hurt anymore. I can still remember with vivid clarity things that people said of a hurtful nature going back to the fourth grade. Words matter, and they matter to God. But can we say this also? Caring love is as righteous as lawful obedience. And the point is simple. There's power in your words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Even speaking certain words can change a person's life. I remember my, um, my wrestling coach in 10th grade, Lynn Goss, godly man. He invited me over uh, one night to have some pizza. We were talking about the things of the Lord. I just recently become a Christian. And I remember him saying just, just a few words of encouragement about the way he had seen my life change. I, I can't describe to you what that, that did to me. A man I loved, a man I respected, who used his words instead of in a way of death, in a way of life, and they gave me encouragement that I still live on to this day. In fact, I'm convinced that had he not done that, it'd be very unlikely without God's providence, if I can say that, that I'd be standing here today. His encouragement set my life on an entirely different trajectory and direction than it would have been otherwise. So, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, you shall not kill. Seems simple enough, but it's going to take some discussion to apply all the parameters of what that means. Very clearly, first-degree murder is out. Capital crime demands capital punishment. But everything beyond that, the scriptures give us regulations for and cause us to apply biblical wisdom to. It's doubtful that any of you, at least those I know, are going to be tempted are guilty of unlawful murder. But wow, do we need to remember what Jesus said about the sixth commandment. Oh, you think you're okay because you haven't committed that. But I say to you, anyone who is angry or hateful towards someone has done that in my sight. It really turns up the volume, doesn't it? When Jesus interprets the sixth commandment, we ought to listen. The parameters for obeying for the Jews were a clear vision for and obedience to Yahweh. For us, 
It's a clear vision for and understanding of and obedience to Christ and the gospel. I just think of Saul. Just think of Saul. If you want to go back in the Old Testament, you can think of David. David was guilty by uh, compliance to murder, yet he was a man after God's own heart. Saul was guilty by compliance of the murder of Stephen, and yet he became the apostle Paul. What a God who forgives. What a God who forgives. If you've experienced that forgiveness, it's good to walk in it, to rejoice in it, to sing about it, to discuss it with one another. But if you haven't, man, this is a great night. You can be forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future, by believing in the Savior who died in your place for those sins on a wicked, cruel cross and rose from the dead and offers us abundant life now and eternal life with him in heaven. That is, that is really good news. If you'd like to talk about that, I'll be up here. Uh, we can go to our prayer room and pray. And any of the people around you would love to talk about that. Don't leave tonight with questions about your soul. And if you have things in your past, things in your mind that you know you're guilty of, be refreshed that we have a Savior who knows and died for those sins. That's good news. Father, give us fresh perspective. There are so many so many different possibilities and questions and applications that come out of the sixth commandment. Give us the encouragement and the deliberation to explore those, both in theory but mostly in practice. Because all those theoretical applications are one thing, but Father, you have been so clear in the words of your Son to tell us that hatred, insulting behavior, words, attitudes... are as culpable before you as the taking of a life itself because we're criticizing and demeaning someone who bears your image. Make us recognizers of the image bearers around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.